Our topic today is writer and artist Frank Miller, the sole creator of Electra, Sin City, and 300. In addition to his creations, he also revitalized established properties like Daredevil, Wolverine, and Batman. Miller is also a film director. He co-directed 2005's Sin City with Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino, along with 2014's Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. Welcome to another episode of The Real Heroes. Remember to subscribe to the feed and publish reviews on YouTube, Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Remember to download the episodes, and if you want to support the show, you can find The Real Heroes on Patreon. My guest today is Dr. Liam Burke of Swinburne University. I am your host, Michael Lay, and this is The Real Heroes Podcast. So, who exactly is Frank Miller? You, you recognize a Miller book at a distance, both his art and his, his sort of uh, noirish uh, approach, his, his kind of hard-boiled uh, dialogue and character types, and but his contribution to American comics, to maturing the characters, darkening them a little bit. Uh, he's been heavily imitated, but rarely matched. In 1979, Miller was brought in as a guest artist on Spider-Man front covers. It was this job that made him express his interest in Daredevil. Frank Miller uh, was the Irish-American writer-artist who came up through Marvel Comics, really, uh, through his landmark contributions to Daredevil. Uh, creating characters like Elektra, really emphasizing the crime and also martial arts elements of that character, the noir elements and so on. First as a artist and then subsequently as the writer artist on that book. But Daredevil was a, you know, if I'm being kind, was a second tier character, really a third tier character. Uh, and so the stakes were really low. And so when Miller started to really do some really interesting stuff from some formerly experimental stuff, some some kind of risque stuff in terms of like the seriousness for which the character was known. Because I mean, Daredevil up until that point, the Daredevil name comes from the idea of like a Daredevil as a sort of a kind of a, almost like a rodeo clown. But like Miller, who was an Irish American Catholic, really started to lean into the devil aspect and starts to play up uh, the ethnic origins of the character, also his, his guilt, his his more his uh, you know his his Catholic guilt, uh, his mother who had previously been taught to be you know, deceased reemerges as a nun. You know, so then he starts to play this. It was a much more of a serious book. He's heavily influenced by hard boy crime fiction. He also has a massive interest in martial arts and martial arts movies. So you know the the hand, which is this sort of ninja mob, starts to become more prominent. Uh, the Kingpin, which was this kind of throwaway villain from Spider-Man, is repositioned as this almost dark Corleone-type uh, criminal mastermind. So it becomes a much more serious book, and people start to notice. In particular, DC Comics started to notice. Miller reflected on his tenure with the character in the 2003 documentary, The Men Without Fear, Creating Daredevil. I introduced Electra in the first issue of Daredevil that I wrote. I had been waiting to bring her in. It was just an exploration of what, I guess, superhero sex would be like. She had to be cruelly and coldly murdered by the worst possible enemy Daredevil ever had. 
The Electro Lives Again was a ball to do. It's, it's completely insane. Writing comics is a great gig, whichever way you do it. I got to draw a couple of issues of, of the secondary Spider-Man title. They guest starred this character, Daredevil, that I'd never really paid much attention to. I mean, I'd read the old Stanley Gene Colon issues, and I, and, I, and I really enjoyed them, but, but I had never thought of this guy as a major player. And this guy, Daredevil, I kind of dug him because, well, how many superheroes are known for what they can't do? I mean, Superman can fly and lift, you know, lift up buildings and all of that. Batman's ridiculously smart and he's got all the technology in the world. And Spider-Man can spin webs and swing across buildings. Daredevil, he's blind. He can't see. That's his distinguishing feature. I fell in love. This guy was perfect. He could be the, the, the perfect hard-boiled superhero. Along the way, I decided he had to be a Catholic because only a Catholic could be a vigilante and an attorney at the same time. So I think religion and, poli and politics both have a, a very profound relation to comics because cartooning is taking reality and making it more so. It's like Hitchcock said about melodrama, is reality without, with, with all the boring parts taken out. There was a lot of ruckus when, when, when I was working on Daredevil as it found its voice because the violence was so harsh and because people were getting cut up. Mostly it was the harshness of it, the way that, that had, had, a, had a strong reaction from people because it was as if I brought um, you know, whiskey into a playground or something. In comics, in comic books, in superhero comics, people have wasted awful lot of creative energy and hard work looking for kids who aren't there. The audience who read Daredevil was not juvenile. They, they weren't. And I got this, this character who'd been pretty, I mean, I think even the most generous people would call it grade B character. He was the poor man Spider-Man. And, and, and everybody knew that. But I kind of saw this guy as being something much cooler. Matt's been the guy I punished for, for, for all my you know, mistakes and sins. Because <laughs> he, he really is, he is a flawed hero. In that, in that he, he's a man who intends to do good and causes much damage. Matt should have been a villain. He had a horrible childhood. His romantic life is the worst. Oh, sure, the girls look great, but they end up dead or killing him or something. Um, and, but somehow this guy redeems himself and, and moves ahead. He just doesn't give up. He's just like his dad. Miller returned to the character in 1986 for a well-regarded story arc entitled Born Again. With Born Again, what I was really at, it was, it was, I think, the first of a series of works that, that, that I, I've been involved with, where I've looked at taking the machinery of the hero apart and putting it back together in, in, in leaner form, so it was more pure. An awful lot of the conventions of the superheroes comes from the fear that was generated in the 1950s. By, by the Senate hearings and the Comics Code and all that censorious nonsense. 
in Born Again, I really wanted to just say, okay, once and for all, I know you guys were moving fast. I mean, I know you guys. I know Stan, Bill, you know, Stan Lee, Bill Everett, Wally Wood, all the rest. I know we all have to work for a living, and I know you kind of bashed this one out, okay? But let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at what works. And the Catholicism angle worked. And the senses work. I mean, Daredevil is by far one of the sexiest here in comics. But beyond that, this lawyer vigilante thing, I mean, it's always been shaky. It's a, it's a fun contradiction, but it's a contradiction. And so I thought, break it down. Destroy him. And then have the real deep hero emerge. And what I thought was the winning idea was I got rid of the costume for a good long time. And so that he wasn't wearing the tights, and, and you realize the hero wasn't the costume. The costume was just dressing around the hero. Miller spoke about his creative process on Daredevil with The Walking Dead's Robert Kirkman. I think the way that you have taken the characters of Batman and Daredevil and uh, fundamentally changed them into your own vision in a way that really kind of set the stage for everything that came after, I think is... Uh, uh, Again, you know, something more people should be striving to do and is just, you know, absolutely amazing and impressive thing. I'm not going to apologize for this compliment. But uh, um, you sit down to take over Daredevil, for example. Yeah. Like, what's in your head? Like, how do you look at that landscape and go, okay, we need an Electra. I'm going to take Bullseye and turn him into somebody who's actually serious and deadly. Like, how do you nuts and bolts just kind of jump in and go, okay, this needs to happen and this needs to happen? Like, what, what's the thought process there? When I was 24 years old, the thought process, process was, oh my God, I get to do a multi-comic book and I meet the deadlines. The first thing I thought was I'm going to turn this into a crime comic because I had decided my mission was to bring back the crime comic, the one that wasn't involved in mythology. So I brought back a kind of a cartoon underworld and just stole from Will Eisner shamelessly. And, 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 uh, and, and uh, you know, eventually when I got the writing end of it, you know, brought in Electra and turned it into a gothic romance. That was when I decided it was going to be one big long story. That one was a real epic journey for me. Uh, Dark Knight was much more consciously a uh, novel. In 1982, Frank Miller teamed up with Chris Claremont for a four-issue run on Wolverine. So Wolverine was the became the breakout character of the second wave of X-Men comics. So X-Men is relaunched, uh, having only been a modest success in the 60s, in the early 70s, with a, a largely new team. Uh, so characters like Storm and Colossus and Nightcrawler are introduced for the first time and Wolverine who had been previously created by Len Wynn for um, you know, an issue of Incredible Hulk is brought in here and he starts to slowly take over the book as the breakout character and so there's a desire amongst audiences to know more about him and so he gets a, a, a four part miniseries, he's the first X-Men character to get kind of effectively his own book which, uh, if I remember correctly, was written by Claremont and uh, drawn with some co-planning duties by uh, Miller. And it sends Wolverine to Japan and it fills in his backstory, kind of gives him the sort of tragic, uh, you know, heroic origin. He becomes almost this, um, like his code of ethics is bedded down for the first time. He his death to the samurai and kind of you know gunslinger tradition is sort of embedded. This is a tragic, flawed hero, uh, someone who has this berserker rage, can't seem to quite you know uh, 
controller, but that actually has this quite honorable sensibility. And while that's become sort of, you know, par for the course for Wolverine now, uh, Wolverine was never intended to be the breakout star of the X-Men book, but the, uh, but this sort of, this miniseries sort of cemented that position. And so when you look at films, the better X-Men films, and particularly the better Wolverine films, in particular, you think something like The Wolverine, which was the sequel to the terrible X-Men origins, uh, it succeeds in part by swinging back around to Miller and Claremont's version of the character. After revitalizing established Marvel properties like Daredevil and Wolverine, Miller's next task was DC's Batman. As discussed in the 2005 documentary, Legends of the Dark Knight, the history of Batman. In the 80s, I grew up with Frank Miller, when Frank Miller came in there and completely, you know, revitalized the Dark Knight once again for a new decade. He kind of brought Batman back to his darker roots and, and something more in line with the original vision of the character. And from that point forward, that's the Batman that we wanted to see. And then that's the Batman that Tim Burton gave us in, in 1989. Both times I visited Batman with Dark Knight, I was, I was looking to bring him into whatever era it was. It doesn't even have to change the essence of the character. It's just that you should pay attention to the times you live in. And in the 80s, when I did the first Dark Knight, I, I felt the character had taken on an irrelevance because the world he inhabited was a very safe place, and so dressing up like a bat and hunting down criminals and savagely beating them seemed a bit extreme in the nice world of Gotham City. And so I looked around for something that would justify uh, a character as severe as Batman needed to be, and as he had once been. All I really had to do was look out my window. Uh, the 80s were a scary time, I mean, and, and, and as, are, as are these days. He said, well, we'll just put them at odds with each other. Putting them at odds is a great idea. When they're friends, you don't have a lot of friction going on there. In the fantasy of a superhero, he takes on, on the notion of being either a father figure or an Avenger, um, and someone who's bringing order to a chaotic world. I think that there has been a, um, um, an attempt to bring a superficial reality to superheroes that's ultimately rather stupid, that, that they work best as the flamboyant fantasies they are. I mean, these are characters who are broad and big. Um, I don't really need to see sweat patches under Superman's arms. I want to see him fly. With the success of The Dark Knight Returns, Batman had once again hit the mainstream. Miller revitalized Batman's world again in the 80s with his groundbreaking tale of the Cape Crusader's early years, Batman Year One. The comics were alive, full of creativity, and as popular as they'd ever been. Robert Kirkman testified to the legacy of The Dark Knight Returns in an interview he did with Miller. Sure, please do. There's there's Batman before Frank Miller and Batman after, and I think that you introduced the concept of this grim and gritty and scary Dark Knight that, you know, still prevails to this day. And I think that's why we're never going to get a Batman movie that doesn't have a guy in a jet black rubber suit uh, uh, speaking with a scary gravelly voice. I feel like that's not necessarily what your intent was, but I think that's how other people, you know, pull that through. Does he have to have fake muscles? I think that a Batman doesn't work unless he has uh, fake abs molded into his chest piece. I think that that is the really the the thing that really strikes fear into the heart of uh, of evildoers. And they lured Miller from Marvel to DC with the promise of creator-owned titles. And this is in the early '80s when creator-owned titles were not really a thing that were offered by the mainstream publishers. So he goes across and he, he, he 
publishes a book called Ronin, which kind of indulges his interest in uh, martial arts and ninjas and, and, and so on. But his real contribution then is to Batman. And so the mid 1980s, he does two hugely influential, still influential today, books on Batman. Uh, the Dark Knight Returns, which is a near future set Batman story in which a you know long retired Batman comes back uh, and puts on the cape and cowl, revisiting older versions of lots of the, the popular characters from you know, Commissioner Gordon to Joker to in particular Superman. And he becomes this almost Clint Eastwood in a cape character. He is a no holds barred almost far-right fascists uh, and uh, so there's this sort of almost ideological schism that's set up between him and Superman who uh, and and the book is really interesting in that respect uh, but beyond that it's also visually quite inventive so and having Miller as both the writer and the artist gives it a perhaps a coherency and a continuity that was lacking in most books because they tend to have a more production approach where the writer and the artist were different people. Uh, it really felt like it had a singular voice. And his other major contribution during that time was, of course, Batman Year One, which is a retelling of Batman's origin and becomes the sort of de facto definitive retelling of Batman's origin, hugely influential on later TV shows and movies like Batman Begins and Batman the Animated Series, uh, which talks you know, about that kind of first year uh, in which Batman struggles to you know, find his identity uh, and so on. And so those two books are massive successes and Miller becomes like, you know, the star name. In 1991, Miller published The Hard Goodbye, the first volume of the Sin City comic book. The story and visuals were influenced by classic Orson Welles films, such as Touch of Evil and The Stranger. And he goes to publishers like Dark Horse Comics and IDEW and Kitchen Sink, and he starts to do more creator-owned books. Uh, of the ones that really broke out in a meaningful way would be Sin City, which is a true noir in the sense that it's a black and white book, only rarely punctuated by instances of primary color, set in an exaggerated noir aesthetic of big burling heroes and trench coats and you know fantastical uh, you know strippers and, and and so on. But it kind of it it really has that noir aesthetic to the nth degree. In nineteen ninety eight, Miller and Lynn Varley released three hundred. And then, of course, 300 as well, which is his retelling of the 300 Spartans movie, the Cinemascope movie from the 1960s, but told as a kind of a very bare bones comic book with minimal text. These uh, It's filled with double page spreads. It's told entirely through double page spreads. So it has this kind of uh, panoramic aspect ratio you don't usually get in the vertical comics. And these are published in, uh, in kind of the 90s, moving into the 2000s, and becomes some of the most successful non-superhero comic book adaptations in the 2000s. The filmmakers behind Sin City discussed the film's production on the making of featurette on the 2005 DVD. I remember the idea of the Sin City movie being around back in the early 90s, but I never thought, you know, how could they ever adapt it? It would just become a regular movie. It wouldn't, wouldn't have the same feel. I started really looking at it as, instead of trying to turn it into a movie, which would be terrible, let's take cinema and try and make it into this book. Because the mediums really are very similar. These are just snapshots of, of movement. Of all the principles involved in this, I've been the most startled by how faithful it is to the original. 
Sin City is it's a film noir landscape. And basically, one of the things that's great about the way Frank writes, this was Frank's way to create a complete universe to go as hard and as harsh as he wanted to, all right? And, and make it be as ghoulishly funny and as, you know, gallows humor, cryptic funny. It's not just these stories and it's not just these characters and it's not just this city. There's an entire mythology about this entire piece. And I like the idea of creating your own. I was, I was a hard sell. I've got a good life drawing the comic books and there's really no need to, to um, let anybody have a baby. And I held to that fine until this Rodriguez guy started bugging my attorney and then my editor and hunting me down like a wild dog. And essentially, I was seduced. It became a great sales tool to take around to show all the other actors because mm -hmm. we were moving so fast to say, this is the book and this is what we're going to do. In fact, here's the opening mm -hmm. into the credits. And we'd show mm -hmm. people like Bruce Willis yeah. the sequence. And it already had his name in the credits. I started watching it and about a minute in, I, uh, I said, hang on a second. I hit pause. I said, uh, whatever else I see on this, I just want you to know that uh, I'm in. I play Nancy Callahan. She is an exotic dancer who was kidnapped when she was a kid. Maybe. If in her wildest dreams, her, her knight in shining armor ever comes back, she's ready for him. Mickey Rourke is just so beyond fantastic for this role. It's almost like Frank Miller gave birth to him, all right? You know, he drew Marv and gave and, and created an actor who could play Marv. I play Gail, who is comfortable walking around in thigh-high leather strap stilettos um, with an Uzi and handcuffs. And Frank's an insane man for drawing it. Honestly, audiences are going to be blown away. Can't wait to see it when it's done. You know, really can't, because uh, I think it's going to be a really special little thing that he's done. In a lot of ways, this movie is quite literally like having a dream come true. The process of making 300 was discussed in the documentary, Unfiltered Conversations with Frank Miller and Friends. Different. He writes to satisfy himself. He, I don't think he cares if anyone ever buys any of his books, reads one line, as long as he writes and goes, that's it. This is what I want to see. The story of Thermopylae, the story of the Brave 300, is a story for the ages that needs to be retold by each generation. You look at Leonidas and Batman and Marv, right? Mm -hmm. I always say that especially those three guys are similar guys in a lot of ways. And uh, I always wonder, is that on purpose or do you sit down and that guy jumps out of you? This is kind of a mix, you know, because it's, it's, it all did start with Leonidas uh, when I was a six-year-old kid. Nobody in his right mind has ever accused me of being a realist. That's not my role in things. Um, I write adventure stories. The closest I've come to, to uh, reality is 300. What I did was an evocation. It was not a history piece. And uh, what Zach did was an evocation and not a history piece. In cinema, you know, and in literature, Everyone wants to get in a time machine and go back and go, what, what was it really like? And Frank said, you know, that's bullshit. Why would anyone want to, why would you do that? Why would you get in a time machine and go back? So, so we get Sin City adapted in 2005 by Robert Rodriguez, but he brings Miller on as a co-director. And that you know, signals a wholesale cultural shift 
around the perception of comics. So Miller had a terrible experience trying to you know, write the sequel to uh, Robocop in the kind of the late 80s, early 90s. And here he's being, even though he's never directed a film before, he's been brought on as a co-director by Robert Rodriguez to make Sin City, a kind of recognition of, you know, not only as a creator, but that his visual sensibility is so embedded in the grammar of that book, the Sin City book, that it would be sort of almost dismissive not to uh, give him that sort of visibility. And so they make this as a green screen movie entirely. So it's all shot against a green screen backlog, which allows the heightened images of Miller's book to be achieved through digital backlog technologies and heavy use of prosthesis. And, you know, it's, it, it becomes kind of a breakout movie. Uh, it's followed up two years later in 2007 by 300 by Zack Snyder, uh, which is another breakout hit that uses a lot of green screen backlog technology to capture uh, Miller's heightened visuals. Miller's work on these characters, particularly Daredevil and Batman, continued to be evident throughout the 2010s in various live action and animated shows and films. It is safe to say his influence isn't going anywhere. And that is a wrap for this episode of The Real Heroes. Be sure to sign up for the show's Patreon to hear this week's bonus episode, the story of how Bob Kane took all the credit for Bill Finger's work on Batman. Mm-hmm.